Hello, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. And for those of us who aren't mothers, happy five-year PASPA being overturned anniversary day. For those of us in the sports betting world, May 14th, 2018, represented a seismic shift in the sports industry and the gambling industry. On this day in 2018, the United States Supreme Court overturned the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which was the federal law that prohibited states from authorizing sports gambling. And in the aftermath of PASPA being overturned, some 35 states, more than that, have authorized sports betting under their various state laws. But we're going to take a step back today and go back to the years leading up to this momentous decision. And joining me is the writer and journalist who really was the Neil Armstrong of the coverage the sports betting uh, movement. And this is none other than John Brennan, who was the writer for, for the Bergen Record, who co who founded the Meadowlands Matters blog and was the leading voice on the topic of sports betting legalization and more importantly, New Jersey's efforts to legalize sports betting. He goes all the way back to the beginning of time on this issue which was the first decade in the 2000s. So, you know, John, on this very important day in the history of sports betting, uh, I thank you for joining me on this podcast and, you know, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. All right. Thanks so much, Daniel. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been covering New Jersey uh, efforts in the gambling world for more than 20 years. And so for a while, I sort of uh, maybe vainly thought, you know, I was around for the beginning. I I've been here from day one. And now that I've thought about it, a little bit over the years, these last five years, I'm really under, understanding that the the origin of this really came 40 years before it passed by 1978. And it goes like this. So in 1978, Atlantic City opened its first casino and it's wildly successful. It's the first state in the country other than Nevada to have casinos, right? And so right away in the 80s, astute Pennsylvania lawmakers noticed, wow, New Jersey's cleaning our clock because about 30% of the uh, gambling revenue for Atlantic City had come from Pennsylvanians, you know, especially in the Philadelphia area. And so there was some vague talk about, you know, let's figure out a way to um, maybe we can have casinos. But that, the, that state population was not, not really as eager to gamble historically as New Jerseyans are. And so we come to 1991. Who's the mayor of Philadelphia? A guy named Ed Rendell, who's going to uh, recur in this story. And so was his wife at one point. And he decides, let's have riverboat casinos in Philadelphia. We'll, we'll take back all that money that New Jersey's stealing from us and keep it ourselves. And politically, a lot of, you know, machinations and all that, he couldn't get anywhere. And so uh, he sort of stuck. And uh, the, the saga continues. Go to 2003. I was there for the Borgata opening in Atlantic City. That's the first Las Vegas quality, you know, style casino in Atlantic City. And it set off a spending war, like an arms race. I mean, all of the other casinos in Atlantic City, which, by the way, for 25 straight years had increased their collective revenue, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars upgrading their sites so they wouldn't lose their customers to Borgata. So now even more money is flowing out of Pennsylvania and into Atlantic City. And so by 2004, Rendell, who's now governor of Pennsylvania, he realizes, wait a minute, I, I got I to gotta find a way to st stop the bleeding. So there was a real backroom, you know, smoke-filled cigar uh, uh, deal uh, in political, you know, classic Philadelphia politics, where they sort of changed the 
the focus of a law, uh, the last second slip in 145 pages about casino gambling. Everybody approves it. And then to reapprove it, he goes to the four or five Republican lawmakers. He needs to put it over the top and says, what, what do you need? I want 10 million for this. I want 5 million for that. So it signed into law. So now get to 2006. And now New York was also losing customers to Atlantic City, right? And so in 2006, a crazy thing happens. Pennsylvania and New York both open casinos in the same year. And Atlantic City is devastated. I mean, their casino industry revenue in about five years dropped by 50%. It was a disaster. Thousands of jobs were going to be lost. And even worse for New Jersey, it was a double whammy because the casinos were so successful that they were propping up the state's two racetracks, Meadowlands Racetrack and Monmouth Park. And so now the casinos are hemorrhaging money, so they can't even afford to help the, the racetracks anymore. So you're going to lose the biggest employer uh, thousands of jobs in South Jersey, and you're going to lose the open space um, and thousands of jobs up central and North Jersey. So this is a epic disaster waiting for New York, for New Jersey rather. So what do they do? Anything. Now, unlike Casino comes on in 2011, but you know, for our focus, it's about sports betting. And State Senator Ray Lesniak from Elizabeth and Union County, uh, he tried to, to sue to get rid of PASPA himself. But they were found to have no standing. And also the judges said, and, you know, this is your expertise, but well, there's no harm done. You guys don't have a law that would allow it anyway. So what difference does it make if PASPA is there? Right? So so let, let, let's go back to Senator Lesniak's yeah. efforts. Mm -hmm. How do, how did those take root? I mean, I think this goes back to 2008, 2009. New Jersey hadn't even passed a, a sports betting law yet. Why did he, um, what, what was his thinking behind challenging PASPA in court when New Jersey didn't even have a law in its books. I mean, you pointed out that the courts yeah. threw that case out for lack of standing. How, But how important were those efforts? And how did Senator Lesniak frame the debate at the time? Well, Senator Lesniak is an attorney himself, so he kind of, I think, knew the score. I, I think there was a, a credibility boost among maybe fellow lawmakers that A, he's taking this seriously, B, he's going to court. I don't know if he knew he was going to lose. He's a pretty smart guy. But at least the, the thing seemed more real. Instead of this oh, abstract thing, oh, yeah, we'll have sports betting. You know, not going to happen. So even though he lost the case, I think he he gained in the perception in the state house in Trenton. And then when Governor Christie comes in, he has no interest in pursuing this at first because he, as a former U.S. attorney, or, you know, he kind of knows what he's talking about. And he said, the Supreme Court is never going to, you know, we're not going to win the lower court. The Supreme Court will never take it if that's where you think you have your best chance. So why bother? And obviously, eventually he was uh, persuaded. But the big thing was the referendum in New Jersey in November 2011. Statewide, do you want sports betting? I always get a kick out of it because it's sort of like, well, we know that PASPA definitely did not permit this. Absolutely not. It's very clear the way it's written. And New Jersey and said, who cares? Well, we want sports betting. We're going to get sports betting. And they passed it by a two to one margin. Now, Governor Christie, obviously, you know him, I know him, is a savvy person. He realizes, you know, this is the way the, the political winds are blowing. So he signs it into law pretty quick in early 2012. And that's when the NFL and the four other sports organizations sue. And that's kind of, Daniel, where you come in. Well, I mean, this takes me back, what is it, I think 2012. The lawsuit was actually filed on my on my birthday, on August 7th, 2012, yeah. which uh, I don't want to say what birthday that was, but I think yeah. that was sort of a... Uh, you know, that that really began the odyssey of, you know, the case percolating through the federal court system. Now, now, 
it lasted for six years over the course of two different lawsuits. And today we take it as a given that sports betting is something that states can can make their policy decisions on it as to whether to embrace it or not have any law whatsoever. And we've seen we've seen different approaches, but it wasn't always looking so good for New Jersey. This was this was one of those um, <clears throat> this was one of those, I guess, uh, you know, cases where the leagues won every single battle except for the last one. So how did so, so let's go back to 2012, the first iteration of Christie versus NCAA. The case was assigned to U.S. District Judge Michael A. Ship, who works out of Trenton, who is the district court judge in Trenton, New Jersey. And, you know, the state of New Jersey didn't fare too well in front of Judge Ship. Do you remember uh, much? Uh, about well, I'll mention a couple things. First off, uh, Judge Ship. His brother, a lot of people who follow the NFL, would remember Arizona Cardinals running back Marcel Ship. That's Ship's brother. So, so the NFL is sort of, and the NCAA are kind of the lead, the lead dogs in this lawsuit. And a former NFL player's brother is the judge. Now, as a as a you know layman, I would think just, well, that's crazy. He wasn't just the bro- he wasn't just the brother who played in the NFL. He was part of some type of you know NFL sponsored uh, program. Yeah. To right. provide, you know, opportunities for minority candidates to become coaches in the league. And yeah. he was part of this, you know, feeder system or at least externship program to get him the kind of exposure and training and, and opportunity that would later uh, help him get a leg up and become a, you know, a, a coach in the league. And eventually he became, I think, the running backs coach for the New York Jets. And yeah, I, I think this time, is an example. This yeah, was more than just a bad optic. This could have been yeah. a conflict. Yeah, well, I think this is an example of where, for a layman like me, I'm thinking, well, this is crazy. He can't be the judge. But then I talked to a number of the attorneys involved with the case, and they said, listen, he's got, he, he is, he's at such a level and status. He's not going to throw a case for his brother. I mean, because, you know, and I was reminded, what these judges hate most is getting overturned, right? That's what they don't want. So if they, if they think they can rule a certain way so that a family member will like them better, but then they're going to get overturned. That's not going to help their chances of getting ahead. So, so they told me, you know, background that the the threat of being overturned an appeal is far more important for a judge to avoid than trying to help out a family member because they might like what what they rule. I, and I believe that. And one other thing I want to add about this this time frame is, you know, Senator Lesniak had told me a number of times that, you know, one of the most important reasons for the referendum to pass and the law to pass, even if it seemed, you know, uh, futile, is that he just wanted to get the NFL and the other leagues. He wanted to lure them into a lawsuit. He felt like he could win at federal court because, you know, as we learned later, the whole way the law was put together didn't make any sense. Um, so he was happy with the NFL suit. That was the whole point. You know, he figured he figured at first, remember, only in 2012, only Mon Clark was going to uh, offer sports back. Uh, Mellon's racetrack was kind of conservative on this front. And the Atlantic City casinos, a lot of them are owned by Las Vegas based companies or they have other casinos in Las Vegas. So they're trying to figure out, do we want New Jersey or anybody else to have casinos? Maybe not, maybe maybe the status quo is better, even though in the short run it would help us as an, as an Atlantic City casino having a sports book. So there were a lot of reasons why only Monmouth Park kind of jumped in. And yet even that was enough to get the sports leagues to sue. Okay, so Chris Christie, Governor Christie makes the probably yeah. the most important decision in the case, right? You know, um, he has this, 
attorney general's office. He has hundreds of lawyers on staff that comprise the attorney general's division. And in my home state of Florida, I've seen that, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis uses the AG's office to defend and prosecute cases on behalf of the state of Florida. But in New Jersey, Governor Christie opted to hire an attorney, an outside counsel, and not just outsource it to his uh, you know, AG's office. And the attorney that Governor Christie hired was Ted Olson, legendary appellate lawyer from Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, a hundred Supreme Court oral arguments, Bush v. Gore. We can go through the record. We could probably spend an entire podcast on Ted, Ted Olson. How important we know how important that decision was, but what went into the thinking behind Governor Christie uh, hiring Ted Olson and how controversial was that at the time? Because Mr. Olson does not work cheaply. I mean, we're talking like 2000 an hour, 1000 an hour. Tell us about that decision by Governor Christie. Yeah, it's one of the many threads here that or I call, I call them dominoes. There's probably 17 dominoes or 18 dominoes that all had to fall in the right direction. Here, as it happens at this very juncture, the governor of New Jersey, his previous job was as a U.S. attorney. The guy is not only a lawyer, which a lot of politicians in New Jersey and other states are, but he's a former U.S. attorney. The guy really knows this stuff and he knows this case. And then also, you know, I remember one lawyer once telling me that um, he thinks that Ted also could pick either side of a controversial case and win 75 percent of the time. Uh, because it's not just, you know, this side is stronger, this side is stronger. He makes that side stronger. And so, you know, Governor Christie loves didn't to talk Don about Shula, Didn't Don Shula, yeah. or no, Bum Phillips uh, had that famous quote about Don yeah. Shula, you know, that uh, he, could, yeah. he could take his-um and beat yours-um, and he could take yours-um and beat his-um. Uh, th- there may be something to that, but but uh, on the other side of the equation, there wasn't exactly chopped liver on the NFL's side. Yeah. The NFL hired its own big legal gun by the name of uh, you know, it was a former U.S. Solicitor General, Paul Clement. Right. And they also had they also brought in, you know, from Skadden Arps, the head of the antitrust department. I mean, there were big guns on both sides of the equation. And I remember going to some of the court proceedings in Trenton back in 2013 and 2014. And I just couldn't believe it that I was in this, you know, little courtroom in Trenton, New Jersey, watching yeah. Paul Clement and Ted Olson do battle yeah. or argument over these important constitutional issues, which really didn't pertain or, or, or directly touch upon sports betting, but had to do with the state's rights, the anti-commandeering provision, the 10th Amendment. I mean, we, we were like one of like, you know, two dozen people in the courtroom, probably some of the most compelling oral arguments I've ever witnessed in my entire life. And we had a front row seat, not just yeah. once, twice, but Absolutely. several times. And I mean, how many times do you have one U.S. Solicitor General on one side and another former U.S. former U.S. Solicitor General on the other side? It's incredible. So you know, you're right. But you know, Governor Christie loves to needle Roger Goodell, the NFL Commissioner, about how did you guys not get Olson first? He's like, we're New Jersey, we're a state, we're broke. We don't have any money. He goes, you're the NFL. You alone could have could have afforded to pay this guy ten times what I pay him, and and then you can get the other leagues to chip in, and you could have had him instead. You let you let us get him. What were you thinking there? I mean, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I would go so far as to say New Jersey could not possibly have won the case without Olson. But you know what? They're glad they'll never have to find out. Well, how, do you remember what his hourly rate was? Uh, you, you wrote a series of articles yeah. uh, detailing the you know, overall cost to the state of New Jersey. And at some point when New Jersey was losing decision after decision, maybe it had already been four, five, six 
decisions going against the state of New Jersey from 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 governor from from uh, Judge Ship to the Third Circuit, Third Circuit, and rehearing. At some point, New Jersey was spending you know in excess of one to two million dollars and wasn't yeah. really getting any return on its investment, and and the state. Uh, was facing a lot of criticism over its decision to hire Olson and pay those hourly rates if it was only going to get its lunch handed to it in court. Uh, I mean, do you, I mean, do you remember how unpopular, or at least, at least the the questions that were being asked in 2015 well, again, and 16 about the rising legal cost? You know, I, I think uh, Governor Christie is fairly well known around the country to a lot of people from his presidential run, and you know, you can tell. Couple things. One is he he doesn't really care what people think of him necessarily uh, compared to most politicians anyway. And then also once he got it in his head that he's playing a win here, that he believes clearly that this is this this 1992 federal law in question about sports betting is unconstitutional. That he's not going to just walk away and say, "Oh well, I don't want to spend any money." You know, he's just not going to do that. You know, I will say there's a parallel side because. Um, uh, Monmouth, Cor Monmouth Park track itself was added as a friend of the court to the case early on. And what happened there was Dennis Drazen, who runs the M Monmouth Park thoroughbred racing track, uh, is an attorney. And he understood all the nuances. And he knew that Monmouth Park and the, and the fact that thousands of jobs would be at stake, they could argue in their filings that put a human face on this. Uh, you know, you never you can't read a judge's mind, but this isn't just the serious constitutional questions, which are really important and technically why the Supreme Court took the case. But also, look, these are real people, you know, with real jobs who are not real rich. And if you don't allow us to do this, there are a lot of jobs. And so, you know, I think that helped. But the, the amusing part to me was that, you know, so Dennis had the, he was the brains of the operation, right? But he, he isn't fabulously wealthy. No, he's well off. But Jeff Gorrell, who operates the Meadowlands Racetrack, Harness Racing Track, is a absolute titan in the real estate industry in Manhattan and northern New Jersey and really all over New York City. I mean, incredibly wealthy. And so yeah, Jeff Dennis Gorrell. would have to talk to Jeff Gorrell. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Jeff, Jeff, Gorrell, Jeff yeah. from, from my recollection, Jeff Gorrell had no role whatsoever. Well, yeah. he had a big role. He funded, he, bank, he bankrolled Monmouth Park's uh, a friend of the court briefs throughout. And oh, he, he kept I saying, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Didn't know that. And he kept really? saying what you said is like, well, how many times can we lose before we give up? You, you, you got me writing all these checks. And, and you know, Dennis and, and uh, Jeff don't always see eye to eye, frankly. Um, but uh, I think Jeff respected Dennis's legal expertise. And when he said, listen, we're, you know, we're barely losing or we're getting our points in or, you know, I'm getting told by other experts that they're convinced we have to add also all of those things added up. And Jeff would sort of grumble and write the next check and, and that would continue on. Now, the case wouldn't have fallen apart if Mama Park dropped out. But I, again, I think throughout the, the six year saga, I think it sort of helped that there was a human face to this beyond the constitutional questions. Yeah. And, and I think the importance of Monmouth Park and Dennis Drazen was you mentioned the human face, but it also it, it also, you know, uh, speaks to the issue of harm and, you know, the, you know, vitality of the, of, of New York, New Jersey's equine industry, the horse racing industry. I mean, they they they, they spun a narrative, whether it's true or not that the fate of New Jersey's horse racing industry, you know, kind of, you know, hung in the balance that with, without sports betting, uh, horse racing would, you know, would inevitably 
you know, not just suffer, but fail in New Jersey. And that's a story we're seeing playing out in a number of states where, where the horse racing industry in, in, in all these different states you know, depends on subsidies from slot machine revenues. This was a chance for, for, for the horse race tracks and the racing industry to basically be self-sufficient. And that was part of the narrative that made its way into the New Jersey sports betting case. It was not just, you know, sort of a human face. But it was an entire industry of, you know, breeders, drivers, owners, everybody that comprises the thousands of people that work in the horse racing industry in New Jersey. And you take away or at least prevent sports betting. You put all those people out of work. Yeah. And then, well, the odd thing, too, was, uh, you know, Judge Schiff's original ruling in 2012 or so. Um he says, yeah, the leagues are going to suffer irreparable harm. Now, think about that. So Nevada's had sports betting for decades and decades and decades. The leagues are thriving, right? Um, in Las Vegas, everybody knows about it. Everybody knows there's legal gambling. Now, if you add similar wagering to a central New Jersey, Jersey Shore thoroughbred racing track for four weeks, which was about the time the, the bond was set up to where the judge would make a ruling at that point. So you have to get the injunction. Because let's face it, if if Central New Jersey can gamble on sports at the racetrack there for four weeks, then that's the end of professional sports as we know it. I mean, it it, it was so absurd to me as a non-lawyer that ir irreparable harm, that's the phrase. How, how can the leagues possibly suffer irreparable harm from one racetrack? Not even, not even a whole state. You know, that might be a little bit different. But one racetrack for four weeks offering sports betting. The way people, the many, you know, so many people have been to Las Vegas, they've seen how it works. It, it's astounding to me that that, that that passed through that way, but that's what happened. Well, the irreparable harm argument was was framed uh, to help the league secure a preliminary injunction and a temporary yeah. restraining order in the, uh, I believe it was in the Christie 2 case. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and their argument was that, you know, their polling of, of their fans shows that, uh, you know, there's not just widespread opposition to sports gambling, but they would begin to question, you know, the outcomes and would create a an integrity perception, you know, with regard to the to the fan base. So once you open that door to legal sports betting, it it, it really creates a, uh, you know, just a, a crisis throughout all the sport that now we're going to begin to question whether the matches are fixed whether umpires are making decisions based upon, you know, other factors. So the issue of irreparable harm was an essential ingredient to the leagues getting a preliminary injunction early on in the case, because to get a preliminary injunction, you've got to show a, you're, you're likely to succeed on the merits of the lawsuit. You know, B uh, you will suffer irreparable harm in the absence of an injunction. And then, you know, see, there's a balancing of the hardships, which side will suffer more hardship with a, with, with an injunction or without an injunction. So that's what the leagues needed to demonstrate. And they, they succeeded at least before judge Michael A. Ship, who in both Christie one and Christie two uh, saw this as a very straightforward issue that the federal law, uh, you know, known as Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act uh, preempted any contrary state legislation. He didn't see uh, too too much merit or any merit at all to the constitutional argument that the state of New Jersey raised, which was, you know, pretty much if if you force us, if you force, if you prevent us from having sports gambling and, and require us 
to maintain this unwanted state law banning sports betting on its books, that is a form of, of commandeering, improper commandeering under the 10th Amendment and the, and the, and the state kept, kept losing that argument. I mean, from, from 2012 all the way through the Third Circuit rehearing decision in 2016, I think we can count six or seven court rulings as well as a cert denial from the U.S. Supreme Court, which really gave you know supporters of New Jersey very little hope that anything could be accomplished through the court system. I mean, yeah. the exception of a few people, I was one of them. I I thought that litigating no. litigating was the only way to the last possible breath, because Congress would never, at least in our lifetime, during this device of political environment, Congress would not repeal. PASPA anytime soon. So it, it was the court system or bust. So I have to ask you, John, there was a, a turning point in this case. I would say it was the first decision from the Third Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in 2013. And Judge um, Julio Fuentes authored a majority opinion which concluded that that PASPA was constitutional, but he included some savings language, some language in his decision, which gave New Jerseyans hope. And the language was really a, a, a roadmap that where, where New Jersey would have the option, if it wanted to, to repeal its sports betting law in whole or in part without violating PASPA. And that language Really, basically, that language was the catalyst for everything that followed. Uh, I mean, do you remember at the time, um, you know, how that impacted the case? Well, yeah, it's interesting because in New Jersey and probably other states, too, uh, the governor's office will put out what they call a conditional veto. And basically what it says is we're not passing this bill that's on my desk. But guess what? If you do these three things and pass it again and comes back, I'll sign it. So I, I was thinking of it as a conditional approval. It's like, well, OK, you told us what we what we have to change. And nine times out of 10, at least, it's not like so outrageous that they say, well, the hell with it. We won't even bother, you know, passing the bill again. They're basically told exactly what to do in order to get it passed. And then it passes. And this to me was the same thing. It was like, here's the here's the here's the blueprint. Here's the roadmap uh, in order to have this. And so to, to me, that was a great uh, result from New Jersey. Aside from the fact it was two to one, which is pretty good because you get you get one of the judges and, you know, you and others have, have told me at the time. You know, it was the first of so many times in this six-year saga where I would hear from attorneys saying, you know, this never happens. It never happened. Probably eight or eight or nine times in six years, I was told this never happened. And two to one even, you know, I'm kind of told that often they're trying to figure out how to get unanimity, which I understand. And so it's like, how about if we take this paragraph out and then we then we publish? Okay, you'll go with that. Or you want one paragraph added in, you know, cautionary tale or whatever. Fine, we'll do that. Now it's three nothing. And nope, it was two to one. And as you said, there was a roadmap, clearly. And New Jersey jumped all over it right away. Well, I'm going to read the language. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I think I think the Third Circuit's language was in response to, you know, Ted Olson's argument that if you uh, if you prevent us from repealing our own state law prohibitions, that's tantamount to, uh, you know, pass. But that, that, I mean, that really is an authorization. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let, let me let me let me take this back again. I, I mean, the, the the language from the Third Circuit opinion was really in response to an argument Olson made, uh, and the language that I'm going to read is 
is critical here because it, it it really was the probably the most important paragraph in the history of the sports betting litigation. And Judge Fuentes wrote, on the one hand, a state may repeal its sports wagering ban, a move that will result in the expenditure of no resources or effort by any state official. But on the other hand, a state may choose to keep a complete ban on sports wagering, but it is up to each state to decide how much of a law enforcement priority it wants to make of sports gambling or what the exact contours of the prohibition will be. And the exact contours language, I think the light bulb went off in, I don't know if it was Senator Lesniak's head or Dennis Drazen, but who was the master? I mean, I think Drazen was the mastermind of this partial uh, I, repeal I, law. And before we get to Governor Christie's conditional yeah. veto, do you recall how this partial repeal law, you know, came to be and, 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 and some of the, you know, some of the actors behind the scene, because I remember when the decision came out, I remember that language. And then the state of New Jersey turned around legislation in fairly short order. I think one day after the denial of cert in the U S Supreme court, this, you know, the, the New Jersey legislature passed a partial repeal law. What do you recall or what was some of the what was some of the, you know, uh, you know, important players behind the scenes in making well, I, I, a partial repeal law happen? Because without yeah, I, it, without it, we don't get to the Supreme Court. Right. I, I, I think, you know, I mentioned before the, you know, sort of happenstance that the current governor, sitting governor, Governor Christie, is an attorney. And guess what? Monmouth Park, who operates the racetrack? Dennis Drazen. He's an attorney. And who's the leading lawmaker in Trenton? You know, is he a dentist? There's a, there's a dentist in the, uh, the legislature in, in uh, Trenton. No, Senator Lesniak is the lead guy. He's an attorney. So the, the three biggest players in a way, you know, the governor and the operator of the racetrack and a legislator, none of them had to be lawyers, but they all are. So, you know, that, that, that kind of helped expedite matters quite a bit because they realized. And then, uh, you know, and, and it was true, I think, I think the ruling made sense actually by Fuentes because PASPA is sort of they they hated the idea of a state authorizing and there's more words than authorizing but in any way approving or seeming to support or endorse or all the other words a sports betting that's the worst thing so okay that's that's how you feel in PASPA so what if the state doesn't get involved and what if you let the casinos and racetrack and that was the first plan let the casinos and racetrack set up their own governing body and they'll police it themselves. And um, that that seemed to be exactly what Judge Fuentes was going to let New Jersey do. And New Jersey went ahead and and passed or at least enacted a partial repeal law, which was sort of the mirror image of its first statute, which directly authorized casinos and racetracks uh, to operate sports betting under a regulatory framework. Uh, but the 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 repeal law didn't set up a regulatory framework. Instead, it repealed, you know, all of the state laws and regulations prohibiting sports betting, but only in certain circumstances. It repealed all the penalties only insofar as they applied to sports wagering at casinos, racetracks and former racetrack sites. And in all other respects, New Jersey's ban on sports wagering would remain intact throughout the entire state. So. What, what the state of New Jersey was doing here was to accomplish sort of indirectly what was prohibited from doing directly. They couldn't they couldn't authorize sports betting at casinos and racetracks, but they could decriminalize it 
And, yeah, and the thing is, I, I, and why yeah. was that a bit? Why was that a distinction with a difference? If you well, pointed out, PASPA forbids an authorization. Well, if you're decriminalizing, if you're removing a ban, are you authorizing an activity? And that was really the crux of Christie too. Yeah, and I think that's what why I mentioned that uh, you know conditional veto thing. Right? It's really conditional approval. I mean. Fuentes and, and another judge in the two to one ruling, of course, there was two to one uh, in this case, but uh, are saying, yeah, you're not, you got it wrong, but you don't have to give up. You just have to do this a different way based on what Pasper says. And so that's, that was really encouraging for everybody, all the insiders in New Jersey saying, we have a pathway. And frankly, you know, with the way there was a, there was a flurry right away, a bill sent to Christie's desk. It was too rushed in his mind. He didn't like a few of the details. He said, well, let's get the hang of this. So then uh, a couple months later, um, Trenton came up with a, a better bill in Christie's mind. And then Christie signed that. And at that point, I, I, when looking at it, I thought, well, there's no way Judge Fuentes is, is, is not going to agree. This is exactly what he told him to do. So, of course, he's going to agree with them. And, of course, he did. But there's a twist, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. John, did you ever get a, an answer from Governor Christie as to why he... Uh, signed into law the partial repeal law that crossed his desk in September of 2014, which really was no different than the one he vetoed three months earlier. Has he ever explained his reasoning for why one would have been a sort of a workaround and, and the one that he signed was not? I never feel as if he, I never got the sense that at least I was convinced that there was a distinction between the two different bills. I think it might have been just expediency and wanting to, you know, it was more, uh, you know, to challenge it. Maybe he got, maybe he was ready or felt that there was this potential that his veto would be overridden. Did that ever come into play? Was he ever threatened with a veto override? No, no he, that, he, he, he always basically was able to avoid that. I, I just think he thought the first one felt rushed. Now I don't know from a legal standpoint, if it would kind of look bad, if like, gee, days later, you you got another law. I mean, you know, it, it, did you guys even think about it? Um, I, I don't think he liked the optics of it. And I think there were a couple of tiny details that he just wanted set in. Because, again, he's an attorney, so he may have thought, you know what? It's probably not going to make a difference. They're all very similar. But let's let's change a clause or two just on the off chance that that sends the court in the direction. So just do these tweaks for me and then I'll sign it. And that's what happened. So it was not really a problem on any anybody's uh, front. I mean, they, they, they got what they wanted and, uh, and move forward from there. Yeah, and the irony of, of, of the partial repeal law in the second Christie case was Christie too wasn't, was not a constitutional challenge. Christie too was a, a lawsuit brought by the leagues arguing that this partial repeal was an improper workaround that was, uh, you know, barred by PASPA. It was attempting to accomplish indirectly what PASPA forbade directly. And, you know, Judge Ship recognized it as such. And so did the Third Circuit, both in the original three-judge hearing and then on rehearing. And one of the unusual, you know, characteristics of Christie, too, is that it it led to the first rehearing on Bonk in the controversy and for those the, i mean if you if we go back to 2013 and 2014 and so forth and handicap you know the lot statistical likelihood of, of certain things happening getting rehearing on bonk in a u.s court of appeals is like probably even more difficult 
than getting cert granted by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yet uh, the state of New Jersey pulled that rabbit out of the hat, got rehearing on Bonk and still lost on rehearing. They lost two consecutive decisions before the Third Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and they did not raise the same kind of constitutional challenge that was part of Christie 1. And Christie 1, New Jersey was arguing PASPA is unconstitutional. In Christie 2, the state was arguing that uh, to the extent PASPA forbids states from repealing its own laws, it's unconstitutional, which was a much narrower in scope argument than was raised in Christie 1. But lo and behold, the case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. How surprised were you in June wow. of 2017 that the U.S. Supreme Court was going to grant cert? Can you take us back to your mindset and just to the general mindset at the time as to how optimistic some of the stakeholders were and how pessimistic people were in June yeah. of 2017, did anything would ever come of this, given the one loss record in the case? Right. Well, I, I just got to go back to perhaps my favorite uh, quirk of this quirky case uh, is the second panel, second three judge panel at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. So they have Judge Fuentes is back and then they have two new judges. Well, who are the two new judges? Oh, that's uh, wild, Marjorie, right? It's wild. I mean, it's Marjorie Rendell. That's Rendell. That sounds familiar. Yeah, that was his wife at the time. The governor, the mayor of Philadelphia, who became governor of Pennsylvania, who got casinos uh, legalized in, in Pennsylvania, which led to New Jersey uh, passing sports betting. She is ruling in the case, and she goes against New Jersey. And the other attorney who is new to this case is uh, uh, Trump Barry. Uh, is her last name? That and, name rings a bell. Uh, yeah, Trump Barry. Oh, oh right. Barry from that's the older sister of Donald Trump. I'm not sure what happened to him. He hasn't been in the news much lately. But um, now, and even better that it's it's just weird that a celebrity, you know, and then a future president uh, is in the case. But also in 1993, uh, New Jersey was the only state in the country that got this exception. Where oh, by the way, you know, New Jersey, since you are the only state that has commercial casinos at the time. Um, if you want, you have one year. You can you can have casinos. You can have sports betting at your casinos too. And there are various political machinations involved that, that led them to pass it up. One of the biggest supporters of that idea was a fellow named Donald Trump, who owned several Atlantic City casinos at the time. So there's video out there on on the internet that you can see him uh, really trumping, so to speak. You know, for uh, a law to be passed that would that would have changed everything. First of all, New Jersey would have had it. Um, you you don't have the striking down of PASPA. You, now all you, I guess you would have all today, I think you would only have Nevada and New Jersey with, with uh, sports betting, it seems like, because what other state was going to do what New Jersey did? You know, they could, they had the opening in 93. Well, this, but, was, this was, this factored in to some of the, you know, uh, arguments in the, in the Christie 1 and Christie 2 case. New Jersey was mm -hmm. given, you know, just for context, sure. uh, when PASPA was passed within, uh, back in 1992, there were several exceptions to its applicability. I guess they would call those grandfathering provisions. Yeah. Uh, so PASPA grandfathered in and excluded from its scope uh, sports wagering schemes that had been in existence at the time, but only to the only to the same extent. So so Delaware, Montana, Oregon, and Nevada had some form of legal sports wagering, but Nevada was the only one that had single game wagering. Montana, Oregon, and Delaware only had parlay wagering. 
And the language in, in PASPA's grandfathering provision limited those states to, to, to what they had at the time, but to go no further. So it froze in place. The you know right. sort of you know the state of affairs that existed in 1992, but there was another grandfathering provision or exception that was created just for New Jersey, even though it doesn't mention New Jersey by name, and it would exclude and PASPA excluded from its scope, uh, you know basically any state that had commercial casino gambling that didn't already have sports wagering, provided that the state passed a sports wagering law within one year. I mean that's kind of an unusual provision. Uh, and for the political reasons that I, I guess go back 30 years, uh, it got hung up in the state in the state legislature and New Jersey ended up missing the deadline and not passing any law, probably in large part because of people like Senator Bill Bradley, who were you know, lobbying heavily against the state, you know, doing anything with sports betting and New Jersey's failure to pass any sports betting law when it was given the opportunity to do so under PASPA. I mean, the leagues kept sticking that in their ear, you know, that you don't that New Jersey doesn't even have standing because it, it was given the opportunity and then chose to do nothing, chose to do nothing. And as such, the state isn't being harmed at all by PASPA. Yeah. yeah I want to go back to 2017. because That's where we took a little detour there. But, uh, yeah, you know, you see like live odds, the fluctuations after the interception for touchdown and this and that. Imagine the, the live odds if you had them uh, in this case. So in 2017, they, New Jersey appeals to the Supreme Court for a second time. So they've got what, one in a hundred, something like that shot? Very unlikely. There are more than a hundred cases actually before the court. They picked one case, one case out of 120, 150, whatever it was, should go to the Solicitor General's office. Now, as you know, uh, and any lawyers know, they're sort of known as a 10th justice where the court with a complicated case or maybe something a little on borderline, they say, can you guys put the time in and figure out if there are co constitutional questions of, of notable enough that we should take the case. And, you know, you were the one who I think broke the news that the 20 previous times, I think, that the Solicitor General gave a recommendation to the Supreme Court, 10 times they said, yeah, take it. 10 times they said, nah, don't waste your time. 20 in a row, 20 game winning streak for Solicitor General's office in the sense that the Supreme Court took their advice. So, so now the stakes are so high, it looks like, well, they're going to be the ones that make the decision, right? So then I think it's May 20 of 17, Solicitor General's office comes out and says, nah, this one's not worth it. Don't don't waste your time. So that's New Jersey dead. They're dead. But the, the, there's one wrinkle. There's one wrinkle to that. First of all, yeah. the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court invited the question mm -hmm. should have been sort of, you know, the, the uh, you know, the, the smoke signal bellowing from the chimney that, this was a possibility that the Supreme Court would weigh in here and grant certiorari. And the reason I suspect that the Solicitor General's recommendation was given less weight in this case, as opposed to the 20 other times where the Supreme Court followed that recommendation, is that the, is that the Solicitor General was already a party in the lawsuit by virtue of the you know, United States Attorney General's office, the DOJ, being a sort of a, a an added party to the case so it's not as if the solicitor general was agnostic as to the outcome they were already involved because if this case had gone to the supreme court wait a second it, it went to the third circuit and the solicitor general from my recollection weighed in with some you know input 
or you know opinion at least on the search stage level going all the way back to 2013 so they were not a disinterested party and i suspect that the reason uh the, the solicitor general who predictably said no this is not a cert worthy case the reason that recommendation was accorded less weight is because they had skin in the game and that might have been the one case out of 21 uh where the supreme court went its own way but i think the invitation to answer the question was very telling. It showed to me that in 2017, the Supreme Court was taking a harder look at PASPA than it did in 2013 or 2012. No, it was 2014 when it summarily denied cert without inviting the Solicitor General uh, to submit a, a, a position on its views. So I, I think the landscape shifted considerably in those three years probably in some small part because, A, the composition of the Supreme Court changed as a result of Donald Trump adding, I think, um, Judge Gorsuch, Gorsuch, maybe I'm mispronouncing it. And then the 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 the, the oral, or I, I guess the issue presented in front of the Supreme Court and Christie too was, 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 was different than the question presented in Christie one. And Christie two, you had a much stronger case of commandeering by virtue of um, the federal law being seen as preventing states from repealing its own state laws on the topic, which which represent a, a much greater restraint on state autonomy than the first go round in Christie one, where the state didn't have to do anything. Yeah, as far as the mood goes, uh, you know, look at it this way. So earlier in 2017, yeah, you're appealing to the Supreme Court, you're probably dead, right? So you're you're just about giving up, but you, you it's the last Hail Mary they have, why not? You know, and then all of a sudden, as you say, the Solicitor General's office is, is invited in. So then the, the hopes soar, not only among New Jersey lawmakers and other interested parties, but the gambling industry in general, not only in the US, but obviously a lot of foreign gambling companies are interested too. So so the the IG's office takes the case, hopes soar. They say, don't bother taking the case Supreme Court. Hopes sink like a stone. And then the court takes the case anyway. That's even better in a way than, yeah, they took the case. It's like they took the, they took the case, even though they were told, you know, not, you know, not, not demanded, obviously, there, there's a difference there. But they were suggested to not bother taking it. So now that looks great. And then to close out the 2017 loop in December in Washington, D.C., there's oral argument and. What I always found interesting is I've covered enough court cases over the years that they always warn, you know, sort of uh, layman reporters that sometimes the grilling of one side is not because they hate that side entirely. It's because they're almost certain they're going to go on that side. And then, you know, uh, unless they they fall apart, you know, with those answers. So the grilling seemed to particularly favor New Jersey. But, you know, I was warned, don't be certain of what that means. I don't know if you were more as, as an actual professional attorney, uh, if you kind of sided with that or not. No, no, it seemed pretty obvious to lay people and lawyers, everyone yeah. in the courtroom that, uh, you know, that the Supreme court was going to overturn, uh, PASPA. But I think the, I, I think the open question at the time was whether it would be, um, uh, overturned on the basis that PASPA was unconstitutional or that the state's partial repeal law did not violate PASPA. And I left open the possibility that it could be the latter, but, but uh, you know, what I, I wrote in Forbes at the time that it seemed pretty clear 
at least six of the justices were inclined to overturn PASPA on constitutional grounds. But you don't even have to wait until the oral argument. I think the I, I think the die was cast in late June of 2017 when certiorari was granted because uh, Supreme Court isn't going to grant certiorari simply to affirm. I mean, it's no guarantee that there will be a reversal, but it, it, it suggested that there were some concerns over the Third Circuit's ruling. And if the Third Circuit had gotten it right and the justices had seen no major issues there, then four out of nine justices would not have agreed to grant cert, especially since the, the, since the court Supreme Court denied certiorari three years earlier. So I think by the summer of 2017, uh, we were expecting or at least anticipating some type of seismic shift. And when the Supreme Court oral argument happened, I mean, I was so optimistic even before the argument that this would result in PASPA being overturned that I, I rented the Washington Press Club at the time. The National Press Club in Washington, D.C., uh, I organized a sort of a, a press briefing the day or the business day before oral argument with Spectrum Gaming and a few other you know leading you know thought leaders in in, in the space. That's how convinced I was that this was all going to come down. And then the oral argument on Monday, December fourth, two thousand seventeen, was if not the final nail in the coffin, coffin was sort of three quarters of the way being hammered in. And we were just going to wait for the decision to see which type of reversal would occur on straight constitutional grounds or that the partial repeal law did not violate PASPA. And in retrospect, uh, the partial repeal law being the vehicle didn't really make seem to make much sense because it would have been focused only on New Jersey and it would have led to unregulated sports gambling taking place in the state. And that could have been emulated by every other state. And what, what ultimately you could end up with is unregulated gambling throughout the United States. And I don't think the Supreme Court would have ever gone that far. So the constitutional overturning uh, certainly made the most sense. So uh, let's take it to the decision day on May 14th, 2018. Do you remember what you were doing that morning? Were you just uh, well, refreshing Pacer? Well, I do, because uh, about 24 hours before, I had just uh, gotten my final severance check <laughs> from the Bergen record, and I was going to be, uh, you know, starting to uh, look for a job. And, and uh, Jake, uh, and now we knew this was coming between mid-May and end of June, right? I mean, we didn't know how the ruling would go. Well, we pretty much did. Well, but court's we recessing for summer. The court's recessing for summer. Yeah, Exactly. So, so you had I didn't know it was coming that morning, but you're right. I was refreshing SCOTUS blog all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, the timing turned out to be interesting. But, um, you know, after the oral argument, as you say, there's a lot of confidence that the, because the court took the case. After oral argument, everyone I know uh, in the courtroom or an insider, you know, from Dennis Drazen to Bill Pesquale III to um, State Senate, Senate President Stephen Sweeney, Governor Christie, they were all convinced there's no way we can lose. In fact, um, Monmouth Park actually went ahead. Uh, they had a deal with uh, Joe Asher of William Hill for a sports book at Monmouth Park, and they accelerated construction <laughs> right after oral argument because they figured, why are we going to wait five or six months? We already know what's going to happen. That's how certain everybody was. So the story, you know, made huge headlines around the country. But, you know, those of us who followed up in the beginning, like you and I and, you know, anybody else. It was a it was a, a little bit anticlimactic, other than your point on a legal front, which is well exactly 
how are they going to do it? But every everybody on the inside knew exactly what was going to happen. So it's sort of amusing to see the national media kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe it. What the heck's going on here? You know, what a revolution. And it was, a, you know, it was like we we had the spoiler alerts. You know, we saw the, you know, the, the, the clips online already and then we're watching a whodunit and we're supposed to go, oh my God, I can't believe the butler did it. I mean, it was it was a done deal. It was just a matter of exactly which day and exactly whatever tiny details they had to do, but the deal was done. Yeah, John, John the result seems so preordained that early in 2018, months before the decision was released, a number of states started taking preparatory steps to pass sports betting laws because, you know, you know the writing was on the wall, right? The, the um, takeaway from the to December 2017 oral argument was that this thing is going to go away and states should start you know, getting on deck and passing legislation to be ready for when the floodgates open. And a couple of states, most notably Pennsylvania, Mississippi, West Virginia, got their sports betting laws, you know, firmed up so that they were ready to go in um, June or May of 2017. Delaware didn't even have to do anything. Yeah. But New Jersey, the, which was the primary beneficiary of the Supreme Court victory, they were the party in the case. New Jersey wasn't the first mover after the Supreme Court decision. They became That's the right. second mover. How did Delaware end up uh, jumping ahead of New Jersey? And they, they, should, they should have yielded. They should have yielded out of respect. Yeah. I, I How always did that happen? Kind of I always stick up for the first state, you know, because the same thing happened in 2013 with the online casino game. You know, Nevada had, had had and has online poker, but nobody plays it because, you know, you're in Nevada. You either live in Las Vegas, Reno, you know, Carson City, you know, wherever. You don't live anywhere else. So why would you bother? You just play a game with your friends at the casino. So um, that doesn't even really count to me. Um, well, but Delaware, it's just lottery run. So there's no complications of a competitive market, an online casino or with sports betting. So it's a little more complicated to, to deal with, with New Jersey. And so technically, yes, Delaware did beat New Jersey to the punch by a week or two weeks in each case. But uh, I, the one I got a kick out of is New York because in 2013, they passed an extensive gambling expansion law. And one of the things in there presciently was, uh, I guess what, by the way, some crazy talk, but federal government ever allows us to have sports betting, then this law makes it legal for us right away. And so they got it right away. And the problem was it was only for the uh, casinos and uh, the upstate commercial casinos in particular. And none of them are within a hundred miles of, uh, you know, uh, midtown Manhattan or Long Island or anything else. So what kind of what good did it do? So for four years, New Jersey, just the way they cleaned Pennsylvania's clock for decades uh, on casino, they they uh, cleaned New York's clock on online online sports betting for four years until 2022, when finally New York got mobile sports betting. I mean, it's, think about how many people in New York State live near the state line of New Jersey, millions. And so it was just easy to allow them work in New Jersey. Now, or they can take a train, they can take a bus. They can go halfway across the George Washington Bridge and uh, make their bet, uh, you know, from their phone or their bike or walking and go back. So, uh, you know, that that was pressing in one way with New York State. And then they were really slow on the uptake on the other one. Yeah. I mean, ironically, when New Jersey began to launch sports betting, I was there opening day at Monmouth Park mm -hmm. in yeah. June 14th, 2018 to watch uh, Governor Murphy place the first bet. 
And I was about to place the second bet until Dennis Drazen shoved me out of the way. Let <laughs> Ray Lesniak <laughs> jump ahead of me. So I, I guess I placed the third bet. Uh, at that time, there was no online sports betting in New Jersey. It was bricks and mortar only for June, July, August. And then the online sports betting law came on the books. How surprised are you by how quickly everything shifted over from retail to online within just a couple of months. In June, it was 100% bricks and mortar. And now a couple of years later, I think probably in excess of 85% of the wagering is made 90% the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how how did, did that surprise you into how um, all this changed? Uh, it did, but I, I think, because remember, the whole precedent for all of this effort by New Jersey is to save the casinos and thereby save the racetracks, right? That's what they want to do. That's what their focus is. And so they're thinking, well, sports, but the casinos get sports betting. They'll get more visitors. They'll make more money. That's good for them. Well, what about online? How does that help them? So they had to figure out that every online casino operator in New Jersey has to partner with a casino or racetrack. And once they had that formula figured out, um, then then they could move forward. But I don't think anybody expected 90 to 92 percent of the bets to be online. That that kind of stunned people. But uh, I think there were a lot of casual gamblers. Now, remember, Atlantic City has the only nine casinos in, in, in the state. So there's no casinos up north. There's no casinos in the center of the part of the state. And so I think the Jerseyans or the, the lawmakers should have realized how big uh, online would get, because unlike some, some other states, you know, nobody's more than 100 miles from a casino. Right. So, you know. And and a lot of the bigger destination centers, uh, they that's where the population is. So this isn't really an issue. They're not going to get ninety percent online, but um, it was it worked out great, and it kind of saved the Atlantic City casino industry during COVID. No one could have foreseen this, but you know, all of a sudden they get a third of the take for online casino for doing nothing other than partnering. And so during COVID, the New York casinos are not getting a nickel. They have nothing. And then the New Jersey casinos in Atlantic City, they're all getting a third of the share of the a considerable share of online casino. And in fact, online casinos much more uh, there's much more revenue generated for operators by online casino compared to the you know the, the glamorous sports betting that we talk about. And to the point where the operators are now complaining, like, why do we have to give a third of our revenue to a casino or a racetrack for them doing nothing? But that's the whole point of the state law. We want to save the racetracks and casino. If you want to get in on this, you get two thirds of the money. It's a good deal for you. It's a big state. The numbers have been enormous. You know, the, the operators are taking in about 130, 140 million a month. I mean. You know, you're going to complain about giving away a third. We did that because we care about the casinos and racetrack. We're not getting rid of it. It's not going to change. So, uh, yeah, the, the mobile thing was interesting to me because I, I don't think anybody quite anticipated, and it's not, a, not just New Jersey, although particularly New Jersey, that people would be so comfortable gambling online and trusting that. Part of that being, though, not to be naive, they were already using illegal offshore sports books and all these better. So um, this was just a little more convenient because – you know, they uh, offshore tends to be pretty safe. I hate to admit that, but not 100% guaranteed. You can't call your attorney general's office and say, hey, I had $10,000 in my illegal offshore account, and now it's gone. They won't give it back to me. What are you going to do about it? What they're going to do is hang up. <laughs> That's the way it is. So, you know, it's smarter to play on the regulated side uh, for the most part because uh, yeah, you have those protections that you don't have with the illegal ones.
Okay, well, let, let's talk about some of the winners and the losers here because, you know, this litigation was, you know, this effort to overturn PASPA was largely a collaboration between the state and Monmouth Park Racetrack. You know, maybe Jeff Corral at the Meadowlands was helping to fund some of it, but the Atlantic City casinos were on the sideline. DraftKings and FanDuel were on the sideline. So, in the end, Monmouth Park Racetrack ended up giving everybody else that came afterwards a free ride at their expense. So when you look back on this, was this as big of a win for New Jersey's horse racing industry as as, as it could have been or should have been? Was this a win for horse racing in New Jersey, considering oh, no, how congested the marketplace has become? Yeah, no question. I was just at Monmouth Park Media Day uh, last week, and uh, Dennis Drazen was saying that, you know, they don't think they could have survived without the sports betting supplements and horse racing persons. Now, because since then, the state now gives its own subsidy to the horse races, horse racing tracks in New Jersey. So between those two new sources of funds, the, the racetracks are able to offer enough races, enough horses per race enough quality and that that's a a snowball you know the more horses you have in the race the more gambling there is the better horses you have in the race the more gambling there is the more gambling there is the more you can do more because now you know it just it's a it's a great cycle for them and so yeah and, and the same is true basically for the Meadowlands racetrack so uh, I think the horse racing industry in New Jersey might have died without sports betting and I think the casinos uh their benefit, certainly they benefit um, from the brick and mortar part, but that's a small part of the revenue. Their share of the online casino and online sports betting, um, like Meadowlands Racetrack is partnered with FanDuel, for instance. Uh, now, they have a sports book in the Meadowlands Racetrack, but that's not doing, you know, any kind of percentage of the business compared to uh, what FanDuel is doing across the state with mobile. And the Meadowlands Racetrack gets a cut out of that. So this has been a tremendous boon for the, the racetracks and the casinos in New Jersey. And, you know, for once, you know, lawmakers figured out, we got to do something to help these two industries, you know, whether it's for altruistic reasons or political reasons, doesn't really matter. They wanted to do something. And in the end, they they got what they wanted. And it's a big success of that. They're, they're definitely some of the winners here. All right. Well, let's talk about our all tournament team. You know, who, 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 are the, who are the five key people? that make the all tournament team. And there's a scene, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you've, you've probably seen the play Jersey boys, right? Legendary yeah. play. And at the end, in the closing scene, they each member of the, of Jersey boys, you know, comes out and gives a monologue and basically concludes. None of this would have happened without me. None of the success of, of the four seasons would have happened without my contribution. Yeah. Who can make that speech? in the New Jersey sports betting case and why? Well, clearly Senator Ray Lesniak, clearly Dennis Drazen, the Monmouth Park operator, clearly Governor Christie, ultimately, um, probably clearly uh, Governor, uh, State Senate President Stephen Sweeney was pretty involved because he made sure that the referendum got on the a ballot in uh, in November of 2011, that was key. Um, Bill Preskrell III does a lot of lobbying behind the scenes. Um, Joe Brennan Jr. was in the original version of all this, you know, 15 years ago, 
no relation. Joe loves when I mention that, but uh, it is no relation. And um, so he was sort of a founding father that got the ball rolling a little bit. So he's a little underrated on this. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of who will. I mean, Governor Murphy, arguably, because by the time he took over, um, it was late in the game. But I, if I remember right, Oh, he just got his name. He just got his name. Yeah. On. Yeah. He I was, was going to say that I was going to say that maybe he could he have pulled the plug on the Supreme Court effort. I think I think yeah. it was already down the road by the time he, he took office. He so, was, yeah, he was the Ron Davis. of. <laughs> I don't know if you'll get the reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the New York Yankees had a relief pitcher by the name of Ron Davis. Father of Ike Davis, who later played for the New York Mets, uh, they called him the vulture. You know, he would come into the, you know, into the game with a lead and in a safe situation and he would give up the lead. And then the Yankees would come back, win the game while he was still pitching and he would get the win. And he compiled this record. I don't know if it was like 14 and two in the 1980 regular season that I, I mean, I hope this doesn't get back to Governor Murphy, but he was really gifted you know, a case that had already been briefed and argued yeah. and it was just already gift wrapped and he gets his name on the decision yeah. because he becomes inaugurated as governor a few months before the U.S. Supreme Court renders his, his ruling. So maybe there are many parallels between, uh, you know, G Governor Phil Murphy and former New Yankee, New York Yankees relief pitcher Ron Davis. But I don't think he was so essential. Yeah, let's talk that, also, that also we got to jump in with, right? We yeah. can't forget him. Let, let's let's also focus on someone we know very well, and he was some of the money behind the scenes in that he, we're, we're talking about Joe Asher. Joe Asher at the time was the, I guess, the CEO of William Hill US. Today, he's president mm -hmm. of the sports betting division of IGT. He partnered with Dennis Drazen and invested you know, a significant amount of money in the construction of what would later become a sports book at a time when sports betting wasn't legal. How instrumental was, was Joe Asher in keeping this movement going? Well, I remember this. I talked to Joe last year for a feature on this because I was always kind of intrigued and I had to ask him, like, that partnership was set up long before that December 2017, uh, you know, hearing in Washington, D.C. that went so well for New Jersey. And I think it was six months before, probably. And I said, why would you bother to be a partner to open a sports book at a racetrack in a state that doesn't have legal sports betting? And he said it was pretty simple. I sat down with Dennis Drazen. He's a brilliant guy. And everything he said made sense to me. And so I figured, let's let's get a jump. This is going to happen. And, I, I, you know, it's a really impressive you know, I know Dennis well, and just the idea that, you know, he could explain to somebody, look, we're going to win. And, you know, I, I must confess that early on, going back to 2011, 2012, Governor Christie's position on this, that it, it, it's it's useless, it's hopeless, we'll never win, you know, 2011. Uh, he's a former U.S. attorney. I totally bought into that. And so I, w I was on that track in my mind for years. And then um, Dennis was winning me over a little bit and you were winning me over a little bit um, because you guys were so sure that I was going to win. And I just got stuck in my head. Governor Christie's telling me they're never going to take this case. So why bother? And I, I kind of, uh, you know, listen to that uh, focus. And then it's probably three, four years in and we're having a conversation 
And you're making some of the same points again, but maybe in a little bit of a different way. And a light bulb flying off my head. I'm like, well, New Jersey's going to win this case. It's amazing. You know, it's going to be a revolution. And so I, at least I felt like I wasn't at the last minute, like a lot of people, but I was a little late to the dance on uh, realizing it. No, partly not being attorney. Well, I think I might've been overly optimistic. I mean, it, a, a lot of what I said ended up, you know, coming true. My predictions as to the, losses in the cases i mean my, my, i was you know batting average of a thousand i mean i sat in the court proceedings I, I you know i could obviously tell that this wasn't going well for new jersey but uh at the end of june right before cert was granted uh i began to come around on the idea that the supreme court would take the case for a variety of reasons uh but it changed all of our lives but you know if you're asking me who the most valuable player is Obviously, you can make a case for Christie, for Lesniak, for Sweeney, without whom none of this gets passed into law. That's obvious. The lawsuit isn't even filed. And we have to mention Ted Olson. I would say the two most important people in the case, I'm never going to go with the politicians. Because yeah. politicians, if it wasn't Sweeney, if it wasn't, Le there would have been somebody else. But without Dennis Drazen, there's nobody who keeps this, who keeps pushing, because after Christie won, after the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert in June of 2014, by all measures, this controversy was dead. Dennis kept it alive. And Dennis, I believe, was the mastermind, but one of the masterminds behind using the Third Circuit rationale as a sort of a loophole or a roadmap to repeal New Jersey sports betting prohibitions without Dennis. We're not here today talking about the 50 year anniversary of PASPA. And of course, without Ted Olson, uh, who's on the front lines with the creative lawyering and the passionate advocacy. Uh, you know, Dennis's idea uh, isn't framed correctly before the Supreme Court. And I don't want to overlook Dennis's own attorney, who is the uh, uh, former dean of Seton Hall Law School. Uh, but in Ron my, Riccio, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Ron Riccio. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Ron Riccio. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I know Ron's name. Ron was really an important integral part of the legal advocacy in this clay, in this case. But at the end, Ted Olson was on the line in the courtroom in Washington, DC on December 14th, 2017, his oratory, his argumentation swayed the U S Supreme court and Dennis Drazen's efforts behind the scenes, whether they're in smoke-filled back rooms or not, his his influence made all of this possible. So I would say, you know, on the legal side, it's obviously Ted Olson, but on the mover and shaker side behind the scene, uh, Dennis Drazen is the straw that stirs the drink uh, to kind to kind of plagiarize uh, Reggie Jackson from 1977 and speaking of himself. Well, yeah, I, I like your point because I've never fully grasped this before. Uh, I like to learn something in my old age because, again, that sort of uh, relevance here. If no casino operator or racetrack operator tries to get sports betting, then there's no case. I mean, the whole the whole point of it was somebody had to step forward. And I was just talking to Dennis about this the other day. You know, he said a lot of people don't like to take chances because, um, you know, he's got the, the uh, uh uh, new forms of betting on horse racing now. And he said, I, you know, 
I, I try to be careful and I do my research, but if I think something can work, I should just do it. And so his, his track trying to get sports betting, absolutely going to do it, force the NFL and the other league's hand to sue. And without that, they didn't have to because, yeah, the law passed, but who cares? Nobody's using it. Um, because every other possible entity that could have offered sports betting was not willing to step forward like Dennis was. So I yeah, think I mean, you're right. I've been underrating him for a while. That's, that's a great point. Do you remember? I mean, none of this is even happening in terms of a lawsuit unless Dennis Monmouth Park and, and, and William Hill go through with this, you know, promise to offer sports betting at the racetrack on that Sunday in September of 2014. And that announcement and advertising around it prompted the leagues to bring the suit and file motions for temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction to basically set the stage or, or, or put the case on the trajectory to where it ultimately ended up. So uh, you're asking me for my vote, you know, Den Den Dennis Drazen all the way, Ted Olson is the obvious one. And uh, you know, it's the case that, uh, you know, just fascinated us for so long and you can't really distill six years of litigation into one podcast, but hopefully We've hit some of the, you know, high points and, and, you know, you're hearing from, you're hearing the perspective of, of, of two of the journalists and writers who lived this entire case. And, and before we go, it was there one part of, of the lawsuit. Is there anything that you recall that stands out in your mind that we haven't talked about any surprises or really stunning developments in the case? I mean, I have a few. Yeah, you just named a bunch of them, I must say. But, you know, I, I did like the one where uh, U.S. Attorney Paul Fishman is trying, is flailing around, somehow trying to defend this idea that, you know, we're, we're not commandeering. And we, we can prove that. You don't have to worry about us is, hey, New Jersey can do whatever they want. You know, I mean, you know, the effect was almost a metaphor of like, you know, six-year-olds can play crafts in a sandbox, no problem. You know, and so the judges uh, challenged him on that. And his quote, famous quote was, you know, it would be a really, really bad idea, but they could do it. But then he said, it's not because of PASPA they don't do it. It's because it's a bad idea. So it has nothing to do with PASPA. So he tried to rally around it, but he was put in a box that no, I don't think any attorney on earth could have escaped from. Yeah, that's such an underrated quote. I mean, it, it, you know, that might have been the first, the opening of the door to uh, Judge Fuentes's, you know, exact contours language in his majority opinion. I think Paul Fishman may have opened the door to that. And that quote is such an underrated quote because he raised the prospect for the first time that the U.S. government would stand behind New Jersey making its own determination as to how far it wants to go on a repeal law. So I think that's a great, uh, that's a great, you know, sort of you know, underrated development. For me personally, it was the prospect that for, you know, the period of four hours, there could have been uh, allowable betting on any sport other than hockey, basketball, football, and baseball. If you remember Judge Ship's uh, preliminary injunction or TRO ruling in September of 2014 allowed, would have allowed uh, New Jersey to conduct wagering on activities not involving the four major professional sports leagues. So it could have had soccer, boxing, MMA, table tennis, um, and Remember, I think it was the question that Ron Riccio might have asked at the end of oral argument. Would it be OK? Does your ruling only restrict New Jersey from this type of betting, but not these other sports? And in a, in a throwaway line, Judge Ship 
agreed or acknowledged to, to Ron Riccio that that type of wagering on the non-major sports would be allowed until he had a change of heart mm-hmm. and went the other way in his actual written ruling that came down a few hours later or 24 hours later. But it raises the question as to whether the leagues, whether the NBA, NFL, NHL, and Major League Baseball have standing to assert the interests of other sports federations whose interests and whose sports are not before the court. For me, that was one of the most interesting, you know, you know, one of the most interesting sidebars in the case of the sports betting that almost was for a very limited period and in a very limited scope. Anyway, we, yeah. we, we could, I've got one last, I got one last point and I'm sure I want to close out with let's hear it, which as someone, someone who's not an attorney, which is probably a lot of people watching here. Um, the Congress, Congress tomorrow can pass a law outlawing sports betting in the United States. That's over. No, no appeal, nothing. Too bad. They have power. They just have to do it the right way. So PASPA, when it was passed, it it it's not that they Congress couldn't do get rid of sports betting and even maybe get rid of it with some exceptions. But the, what they couldn't do was what they call this commandeering, basically forcing the states to do their bidding would be the layman's approach. And so I remember asking Ted Olson at a conference in Manhattan, you know, after that ruling, and, and I, I, I kind of stepped on my own line, unfortunately, instead of asking why, why didn't they do it the other way, I said, it was this sort of, some sort of politics thing. And he, you know, he took the bait, which I didn't intend to give him, which is, gee, politics, I, I, that never gets in the way of any lawmaking. Uh, I'm really shocked that that happened. And so um, I'm still not sure to this day why Congress outlawed, mostly outlawed sports betting the way that it did in 1992, when they certainly can outlaw sports betting. They just can't commandeer the states into doing their bidding. That's the, that'll be the eternal mystery for me, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the fine print in the PASPA law that had the law been written to outright prohibit sports betting without using the states as the you know prohibitory vehicle, we wouldn't have sports betting today. But you mentioned Congress, you mentioned the prospect of federal legislation. John, with 36 or 37 states in already, how likely in our lifetime will we ever see Congress weigh in with federal legislation touching upon or at least, you know, regulating sports betting across the country? And what would it take in your mind for that to eventually happen? Because I don't I don't see it in the present moment. But circumstances certainly can change. And can you envision it happening? And what type of circumstances would have to occur for Congress? Well, if there are enough, if there are enough scandals, if there are enough scandals um, in any form, if there are enough scandals, Congress feels kind of compelled to act and sometimes overact. Um, and, you know, we're hearing about Iowa and Iowa State and Alabama. And there, there are some now these things have gone on for time immemorial. So it's a little silly for people to think, oh, this is just because there's legal sports betting. Well, in the 1950s, why did CCNY have a, a fixing scandal? There's no legal sports betting. You know, it's crazy. So uh, so that could happen. Also, the the avalanche of advertising drives a lot of people nuts. So I, I think I, I don't think Congress will go crazy in terms of regulating sports betting for the reasons you mentioned. But I think it, it wouldn't even necessarily be terrible if they got involved around the fringes just to set minimum standard. You know, to clarify, for instance, you know, no state can ever, you know, offer betting on high school sports. Now, is anyone doing that? No. Will anybody ever do that? I doubt it. But that wouldn't be a terrible thing, I don't think. I don't like the one 
even in New Jersey where I live, you know, a couple of years ago, I bet on a 16 year old girl uh, to win the U S open. She was second after one round and I was getting like a hundred to one. And like, I, how, why, how can I legally bet on a 16 year old? She's a junior in high school for God's sake. And the reason is because the vast majority of the participants in that competition are adults. And so they let the, but I, to me, you still shouldn't be able to bet on anybody under 21 uh, or at least under 18. I mean, geez. Um, so I know that might be a headache for regulators, but so it's things like that they can do, but I don't think they're going to get heavy handed. Yeah. I, I think what's likely to happen is, you know, the trigger for me will obviously be match fixing and point shaving scandals. Not so much the existence of those, of, of those events, because I think that they've been happening, you know, in sports going all the way back to the 1950s. They just, you haven't been able, you've only been able to detect it in a few you know, isolated instances, there's probably a lot that goes undetected. I think the emergence of, of, of some type of point shaving scandal that the regulated sports books aren't able, the regulators and the, and the sports books aren't able to catch could point out flaws in a state centric system where each state is its own silo. And while there's this, you know, sort of, you know, organization called SWIMA, where the sports books, you know, talk to one another and the regulators talk to one another in the absence of mandatory cooperation and mandatory reporting, the potential exists for, um, you know, schemes and manipulations to go undetected in the current system. And were there yeah, enough communication, basically, yeah, with the government, I agree. Communication is the is the bottom line of that. Yeah. Were there to be enough of that, it could prompt Congress to enact a regulatory scheme that, at the very least, creates tools to assist states in the enforcement of their sports betting regulations. And I think what I'm alluding to here is a uh, a clearinghouse, a you know, sort of a uh, you know a wagering clearinghouse in which all the bets made on state levels, you know, go through a, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, a portal or an exchange or, or a clearinghouse in which they're analyzed in real time by, you know, integrity monitors. And until we get to the point where we have a national integrity platform, the potential certainly exists for undetected point shaving scandals and undetected manipulations. I think the sport, I think the sports books and the sport integrity monitors have been able to successfully flag betters who shouldn't be betting like football players, college athletes, uh, NFL players, but somewhere along the way, there's going to be another Arizona state scandal, another Boston college scandal. And if the sports books aren't able to flag those at the earliest possible opportunities, then that could that that could create a a, a bigger problem uh, for the industry, and Congress could step in at that point. I think two other areas are worthy of federal intervention: um, the Wire Act, the, yeah. the this outdated notion that we have uh, this ability for states to allow sports betting within their borders, but not to uh, permit a customer in one state where sports betting is illegal to wager with a sports book located in another state, and. I think the Wire Act is long in need of an overhaul to um, facilitate interstate sports betting, much in the way that, you know, iGaming can now operate across state lines through compacts entered into by various state governments. And of course, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is has become a very anachronistic law for tribal gaming interests. So there could be an opportunity for the federal government to weigh in here 
either in some limited fa fashion a a as it pertains to IGRA and the Wire Act, or maybe in a broader fashion, if there are any scandals which cause a reexamination of how sports betting should be regulated. Yeah, well, the thing about the Wire Act is uh, you know, I've got 40 years in journalism now. And while it's true that I'm older than the Wire Act, I'm one month older than the Wire Act. So um, I can tell you that at uh, 61, pushing 62, uh, I could use a little bit of an overhaul myself. So uh, I think certainly the Wire Act is, is is a good target for the federal government to look at. The last thing would be um, sometimes the gaming companies are reluctant to share information that could be helpful, understandably, for competitive reasons. And it's possible, although this doesn't always work when the government gets involved, they could be an objective third party and they get the information and they figure out. And then, you know, nobody. So you don't get the books of the other sports book, but but things can be shared. Like, for instance, responsible gambling, you know, people who go on self-exclusion lists, you know, they're struggling with compulsive gambling. Obviously, a lot of them are in deep trouble. They're trying to do something positive. You know, let's respect that. And then the idea that, you know, either another sports book in that state or even, you know, getting material from another, any, anything like, you know, you, you want to help these people out. And if you can have, figure out how to have a way that if they definitely want to self-exclude, you know, they're completely self-excluded uh, if, if that's what they want. I think that could be a good role for the federal government. Again, I understand a lot of times government gets involved, doesn't always work out, you know, what's the old Ronald Reagan line, you know, the most scariest words in, in America, whatever, you know, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of people feel that way, obviously, but I, I, so I think there's potential for the federal government, but I don't think they're going to overstep and, and certainly I don't think they're going to outlaw it. Okay, wow. So five years of uh, the six, the five years of PASPA raises a lot of questions going forward in the future. This is not the end of the role of of legislation and lawyers around sports betting, but we had to reflect on the first five years in the post-passable world. It's been a pleasure, John, uh, reminiscing with you about you know a case which you, know, you and I both lived on the front lines or close to the front lines uh, for 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 several years, six years in fact. And I look forward to revisiting PASPA and revisiting anniversaries. I think the next next major milestone will be the tenth year anniversary. So. If the last five years have been any barometer, the next five years should be a pretty wild ride as well. And there'll be a lot to talk about in in, in 2020, 2028. And I look forward to you rejoining me in 2028 for a, for a retrospective one decade of the post-PASPA era. Um, I'm looking forward to the 50th uh, anniversary because we can talk about whether Hawaii and Utah will ever legalize gambling. That'll, that'll be kind of fun. Maybe we'll already have it. I guarantee you, on that note, I guarantee you, Utah and Hawaii will both have legalized sports betting by the 50th year of PASPA being overcome. <laughs> okay. okay. That, 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 that'll that'll be my hot take. Right. And if I'm wrong, you can come back and, and, and throw it in my face when I'm 100 years old. So, uh, John, thank you for joining uh, joining me on this special anniversary edition of Conduct Detrimental to commemorate five years of PASPA being overturned. Uh, it's a pleasure as always, John, and uh, I look forward to the next time we have an opportunity to join forces on a podcast, which will come forward very soon. Uh, if you want to follow John on Twitter, his handle is Bergen Brennan, B-E-R-G-E-N, B-R-E-N-N-A-N. -N -N. My handle is, of course, Wallach Legal. 
The podcast is called Conduct Detrimental. That's Con Detrimental on, on Twitter. If you can, leave us a nice review on, on, on Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Conduct Detrimental. All right. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Have a good time.